So we've talked about the early days with Stan and Jack. And then the X-Men got giant size. And now we're at my favorite part. Chris Claremont's legendary 16-year run that developed some of the greatest X characters and storylines. Look at you. You're so excited. Welcome to the X-Wife Podcast. My name's Alicia. And I'm Justin. And today we are joined by comic scholar and professor of English language and literature, Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. Yeah, Andrew, Hello. welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good. Happy Glad to hear. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've been a fan of your research for a while now, but for those who don't know, what is comic scholarship and, and how did you get involved? Uh, so comic scholarship is kind of what's on the label, right? It's just uh, English literary studies, mostly like some of us will come from fine arts, but almost all of us are from English. Um, looking at graphic narrative. So books telling stories with images and words rather than just words. Uh, and from there, we sort of branched out maybe just in the last 20 years. Like it's not a very, it's not a very old field. Uh, and it's still a very um, hard to get a job in field, <laughs> which is never. never <laughs> but we're, we're getting more robust every day. And I, I think we're starting to see comic scholarship positions open up at major universities, which is very heartening. And we're getting a lot of like um, um, master's programs in comic studies, which is amazing. That's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that, when, when I read about that or, or about comic scholarship, I was like, how did I not know about this as a, <laughs> as a young lad choosing my major? <laughs> if only. <laughs> um. So how did you personally first get into the X-Men uh, and what is your current extent of X-Men interest? So I think, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure um, an X-Men comic was the first comic I ever bought uh, written by Chris Claremont. And I was like, wow, comics are amazing. Then <laughs> uh, I read a lot of other comics and I'm like, well, not as amazing in all cases, but, <laughs> all. but, but I mean, not all I, comics are created equal. <laughs> No, so I, I went through the uh, um, the rite of passage of like trying to dig out this complete story through like comic book stores and stuff like that, which is not easy to do because it's a very continuous story and trying to find like the, this one issue you're missing that explains everything. Um, so I had a good collection going as a teenager and then I stopped and mostly because I was getting a lot of like literary people telling me that I shouldn't be reading comics hmm. and that I should be studying, you know. Shakespeare, like 10,000 other academics. <laughs> Everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And then I, um, as a PhD, I, I got into the University of Waterloo's doctorate program um, as an American poetry expert. And I lasted, I think, maybe, no, I must have been less than that. I think it was like eight months before I was just bored out of my mind. So <laughs> instead of quitting, which is what I was planning on doing, um, I went home that weekend for Thanksgiving and I dug up my comic book collection and I'm like, you know, these are stories that I'm really interested in and nobody's doing this stuff. Nobody's covering this stuff. No one's talking about Chris Claremont. Um, and yeah, I, I made the switch. My university grudgingly supported me because <laughs> what else were they going to do? Kick me out. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, years later, we, we have a pretty robust field of comic studies in Canada right now, which is great. Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. It's so interesting to think that, you know, how, how few people were or even still are discussing comics critically or their impact on literature and other, other mediums. I think it's just 
Oh, fascinating. Yeah, and it's so it's such a testament to like you following your passion for you to say, you know, this is something that I'm really interested in and it deserves to be studied. Like there's more to it than meets the eye. So like kudos to you for really pushing <laughs> pushing that and spearheading all of this. Yeah. This is something you learn when you study literary studies way too much. Like it's all kind of BS. All, all the reasons why we value certain authors over others. I mean, first off, there's like massive misogyny and racism. And it's not a coincidence that most of the canonical authors are rich white guys, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing you learn is that a lot of the, the authors that we consider to be just like the greatest authors ever, they were considered garbage in their time period. Well, like yeah. like Shakespeare, going to a Shakespeare play in Shakespeare's time was the equivalent of going to a monster truck rally today. <laughs> Nobody's going to celebrate. And now it's right? like, now it's like, did you, did you read Shakespeare? Because if you didn't, you're missing out. Yeah. And if you misinterpret Shakespeare, or sorry, if you challenge Shakespeare in like a high school English class and you say, yeah. this play is not very good. The teacher will assume that you screwed up, yeah. that you missed you something. And maybe you didn't, maybe you got it perfectly. And Titus Andronicus just isn't a very good play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, I don't know who doesn't, but who is Chris Claremont and, and what is the Claremont run? So Chris Claremont is, um, he came into Marvel as an intern, which is delightful because I, I always tell my students who are like co-op students, <laughs> that's how this guy started at Marvel, man. Good start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he came back um, after basically failing as an actor uh, in New York City when he was 25 years old. He was sort of working for Roy Thomas, who's a pretty famous comics writer. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the age of like, like 25 the Len Wein was leaving and he gave Claremont X-Men 25 is too young to have your first book uh, unless your name is Jerry Conway uh, or maybe Jim Shooter. Anyway, so what ended up happening was um, Len Wein just really liked Claremont's enthusiasm. Uh, they describe him as a method writer. Like he, he won't break character voice to save his life, which would actually kind of be why he got fired. It's a long story, but anyway, uh, so on the basis of this enthusiasm and the fact that Ween was leaving for DC anyway, so who cares if everybody's mad at him? Uh, he, he gave the book to Claremont. Nobody cared. X-Men was a, a C-list title. Uh, and they gave him a ton of space. They did give him Dave Cockrum, which is yeah. a gift. Uh, and he made it amazing. Uh, and then once he made it amazing, it was the best-selling book at Marvel. And they had to give him space because he was their flagship. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of, like, circumstances benefiting claremont like, like there are a lot of great authors in comics who never got a chance to do what, what they could do um claremont had opportunity but he also had a lot of talent and he was approaching comics from a character perspective uh which was very unusual at the time so when you started this specific project what was your motivation like what inspired the project and why did you choose to study chris claremont well, there's a thing in comic studies right now where I actually, I talked about this in my like doctoral defense because I was frustrated by it. Everybody wants to like develop the tools. Nobody wants to apply them. So everybody wants to say, this is how you should read a comic. This is how you should read a comic. Here are these different words that we're going to use to define comics concepts. And nobody wants to just like study an author. And I found that was really weird. And in literary studies in general, we're, we're, we're trained to look for gaps. Uh, so who is out there who is not being talked about, who should be being talked about? And for me, that was just immediately Claremont. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at like early 1990s comics studies, Claremont's in the conversation. They're talking about him with Frank Miller. They're talking about him with Alan Moore. 
uh, Neil Gaiman. And then in the 2000s, for whatever reason, we lost touch with him. Um, so I just kind of wanted to like shine that spotlight again. You know, here's a guy doing amazing things that are deeply influential in our culture. Let's let's talk about him more. And that was it. Amazing. So tell us a little bit about the scope of the project, the the Claremont run, and where what's next with it, or where you'd like to see it go. <laughs> I actually have a list going of amazing. things that I want to that I want to cultivate. Lists are the best. How do you yeah. live without a list? Yeah. So so the, <laughs> the scope of the project, um, it started with data, right? It was um, we had an army of an army. We had four <laughs> undergrad students and one master student, um. And we went and we like counted all kinds of stuff to build data on the Claremont run. So we could do comparative analysis of like, you know, how often Storm has a thought bubble, uh, how often Wolverine surrenders and like, like stuff that most people will tell you you're, you're looking too closely at your subject. Oh, no. Not and and that turned up some that. cool stuff and some graphs and things like that. Um, and now we're, we're done that phase. The undergrads have all been set free. Uh, and, and now we're in the analytical phase, which is just like, me using that data um, paired with qualitative analysis, which is what literary studies normally does, like sort of interpreting, uh, in order to say things uh, about individual X-Men stories and characters and concepts. Um, and then the main facet of that is we have a Twitter page, <laughs> which is, again, unusual. Um, we call it microblogging. Or sorry, no, uh, micropublishing in, in academia. Uh, it's pretty new. Um, and the idea is kind of like breaking down the barrier between ivory tower academics and the public at large and not just like talking at them, but like creating a forum where people can participate and correct me when I say stupid things or things that are wrong, uh, and you know, disagree, which, which is great. Um, we don't want the current model of like literary studies to be monolithic where it's, this is what the story means. If the story meant one thing, then it's not a good story. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of that's that's such a beautiful part about like any art is how it can be interpreted and related by other people like how you experience it might be different from someone else so creating those conversations and like creating a project that allows for those conversations with data to back up or yeah. to add to exactly is such a it's such a wonderful thing to have and like you know, we, we've gone through the website and like looked at all the data and I could get like lost in those spreadsheets. <laughs> that stuff is amazing. Like I strongly encourage people to go there and to just like go down dive that hole, in. just dive in. There's so much. <laughs> I finished recently reading Claremont's run and all the spinoffs and tie-ins and I posted about it in the House of X group on Facebook and you actually shared the project. This was maybe like a year or so ago. And I found the Twitter and just literally over the course of three days, just let left the page up and gradually read through everything. I was like, this is, this is the nerding out that I needed. This is awesome. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. How much um, communication have you had with Claremont himself? And has he like given you any feedback on the project? Okay. So this is a really weird one. Um, Yes, I talked to him when we started the project and I update his his wife, who is also his agent um, mm -hmm. intermittently. I can't talk to him too much because it creates a confirmation bias, which is if, if I say, you know, if I try to interpret what Inferno is about and I go to Chris Claremont and I say, what's Inferno about? Uh, and he gives me an answer. Well, then now I'm just like going to confirm what he says, even if I'm not yeah. trying to because it's in my head. So in academia, we really have to maintain like a space 
between the, the the author we're analyzing and ourselves. And frankly, like it was it was the weirdest thing in my existence because I got to talk to Chris Claremont and I was, you know, geeking out as you would expect, right. but also very much trying to not have him say things to me. Mm, yeah, <laughs> because that his work. Yeah, yeah, because I, I I didn't want to invalidate all of my research, which would be mm-hmm. which would be rough. Which is- <laughs> Which is crazy because when we've we've had the opportunity to um, talk with him a couple of times at Comic-Con and like have him sign stuff and then have him like, you know, he loves to just like get into the conversation yes, about stuff. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine having to be like, too much, too much. No more. One time we were talking to him and we were actually next in line and he just started going off about the Dark Phoenix and the movie. And he basically like rewrote the whole movie in front of us and just was like spewing what he wanted the movie to be. And I was just like staring and just like, I'm everyone in artist alley is gone right now. We're in our own little world with him. So that's, that's a powerful commitment to your project to be able to be like, who is this? I can't. There was a thing Louise Simonson said that I thought was really cool in an interview. She said that um, Claremont's greatest skill as a writer was that he could tell you about a story and then still be enthusiastic about writing it after he had pitched it. Hmm. Apparently most writers try not to like talk about it because it, I don't know, gives away the fun, I guess. Mm. Uh, and apparently he just never got gets tired of talking about his stories, which I think is is adorable and awesome. Yeah. When we saw him, that was the first time we met him. Yep. And then the next year, you know, I was like, all right, I'm prepared. I didn't realize he was going to be there the first time. So this time I, I scoured, got some back issues from random, you know, I was like, these ones, these are the ones I want signed uh, and to start up some conversations. And I asked him a question about Ilyana and the, the magic and storm miniseries. And he just lit up about just, you know, oh, it's all in the, the madness of the, the writer's mind. And, and we went on for like 20 minutes about Ilyana and Kitty and, and the role of these, these characters. I know. And then there's like, that people are like, Chris, hey, come on, wrap it up. You have more people in mind, and we're like, no, please. <sighs> well, stay yeah, I think that's the mark of a storyteller, right? right? Yeah, and he's just like, that's what I think you know makes he lives in his characters, mm-hmm. like you were saying. He he loves every single one of them and knows everything about every single one of them. That they're real people. Just what Justin said to me once, like they're real people to him. So that's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories from Marvel about like an editor um, saying, can Wolverine say this in an issue to connect to a crossover or something. And Claremont would just like stare at them and say, no, Logan would never say that. And they'd be like, well, Logan's a fictional character and we own him. Could he maybe just say it this time? And Claremont would just be like, no, he would never say that. Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So, so in this in this data in this research, what are some big recurring themes that have started to show that you found? So, this kind of big picture things that have interested you. Uh, well, I think the big one to start because we, we kind of knew it going in; it was something we were looking for. Was um, um, if you've heard of the Bechdel test, mm-hmm. uh, which measures? Okay, this is a big misconception. People think the Bechdel test measures whether or not women are represented well. It does not. It only measures whether or not women are poorly represented mm-hmm. so so it can indicate good but it can indicate a pervasive trend of bad hmm. um and claremont's bechdel testing because we tested all of x-men essentially uh against like um, a sample of marvel from the entirety of the run he passes the bechdel test 42 percent more often than marvel does line wide wow so he was representing female characters way beyond expectation 
Um, so that was a cool finding. Um, the other one that I've been kind of getting more attuned to is um, the extent to which the series is oriented around Storm specifically, mm. uh, and just how all the major shifts in the narrative as you go along, they tend to shift around Storm's character. Mm. Like we know she's big, we, we, we know he loves her, um, maybe more than any other character. Um, but, but like, she's very much steering the ship in a way that is not always obvious on the surface. I, I know a lot of people think of X-Men as like Wolverine's book and that's so far from the truth, mm -hmm. uh, at least during this era. Right. So that was something that came out uh, that I thought was kind of interesting as well. Um, and the other one was, um, Cyclops because Cyclops has this reputation from the animated series as being like emotionally constipated kind of guy. Um, no, Claremont's like statistically Cyclops hugs more people than anyone in the Claremont run. He's very physically affectionate. Uh, right. He shows a lot of emotion. He cries and stuff like that. He's um, a so deeper character. Cool. Than, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, so I don't know how like much Justin has told you or informed you on like our situation in the podcast and what's going on, like how our whole setup is. But I, I had, before we started, I had only um, seen the movies. I never mm. read a comic. And we started out reading um, House of X and Powers of Ten. And by reading, I mean, Justin would flip through the page by page and kind of tell me what was going on <laughs> and I would react. And then we dive like deeper and deeper. And like from the movies, I just don't, I just, I'm not a fan of Cyclops. I just. No, he's bad in the movies. I, just, I think he's the worst. And <laughs> Justin just like keeps trying to show me that there's so much more to Cyclops. And I'm like. I have some long-term goals with the podcast. One is to <laughs> one is to redeem Cyclops, and the other is to ruin Xavier. And that one is. I'm moving succeeding. forward on Xavier, but <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think you may have to avoid X Factor. <laughs> a few of those early issues because there's, yeah. there's a little bit of a character assassination there. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, no. <laughs> Just circling back to what you said about the Bechdel test, like that specific page of data on your website was one of the things that I found the most interesting to just look at like the, you know, 10 issues at a time, like what percentage of those issues yeah. passes and yeah. to see the span the of like uh, Claremont's run versus everything else was just like, whoa, holy moly. When you like look at it all together like that, it's really kind of amazing how successful in passing that test he is compared to everyone else. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of credit to, um, Louise Simonson and Anne Nascenti too, because that number just skyrockets as soon as Simonson comes on board as an editor, uh, which is really cool. And we know that Simonson and Nascenti played a huge role in Claremont's storytelling. Right. Um, but again, editors don't get enough credit. Never. Yeah. Well, especially, yeah, we, we watched a little while ago. I rewatched it recently, but the, the documentary on yes. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. How, how Simonson's pulling out these ideas and keeping track of all the threads <laughs> and just really helping him be who he is and, and just hit the ground running on these stories. Yeah. Yeah. He, he very much gives the impression of one of those kind of like free spirit authors that absolutely needs a strong editor. Right. Uh, when you have so many that. ideas, you need yeah. someone to like funnel wrangle you in. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> while you've been working on this project, what has been something that has surprised you the most? I was very scared about the micro publishing in terms of, um, being trolled to death on the internet but <laughs> x twitter valid. is delightful uh and everybody's been super kind and supportive in a way that i was not expecting at all i i kind of thought as an academic coming into like i'm familiar with all these forums as a fan of course mm -hmm. but but as an academic coming in being like hey we could look at it this way 
Um, I kind of thought I was going to get hammered and that, I mean, maybe it's still going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So that's been a delightful surprise. I, I've really appreciated the community. That's cool. Yeah. The X community is a good one. Yeah. They're, they're just interested in engaging further. I feel like that's a part of it, you know, to hear what you all are doing in, in taking out these, these recurring themes, these data points and, and drawing conclusions about it. I feel like that's new information. That's new takes and perspectives on characters that everybody knows, loves, and has grown up with. Yeah. And I've had academics come to me and be like, you know, should I do this with the Punisher? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's a different culture. You might yeah. be right. received very, very differently. Yeah. And especially now, just how that, you know, that emblem is in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yikes. Uh, so, so talking about the community and, and the kind of, interaction with people. I, I wanted to bring up the amateur and ironic readings that you all do. Specifically, I mean, I, I did one myself that uh, Magneto's opening monologue from Uncanny X-Men number 150, I'm not going to lie, I watched that video so many times that day and, and since it's just a ton of fun. Where, where did that idea come from and, and how's that been going for y'all? I'm good. I mean, it, it's always hard to find people. Like we're always like one week away from canceling it. And then someone's like, Hey, can I do one? And I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> um, uh, so in academia, we, we were really interested in what's called maker culture right now, which is um, appreciating works of art by sort of simulating them or, or like doing your own, like the best way to understand how a book is written is to write your own book. Right. And to, to really get that appreciation um and um, participatory culture as well so, so these are things that are kind of very i don't know in vogue in the academy right now so the idea of having just just fans share readings of claremont to me was powerful in, in that respect and i really wanted it to be unironic because i think a, a lot of the way that claremont is um um traded in the culture can be very ironic these days mm. uh, so i thought it was fun to just have someone just give a sincere reading like if you're going to be magneto be evil Magneto who's going to mess up your planet if you piss him off kind of Magneto. So the best Magneto. Yes. Exactly. So if, if any of our listeners want to get in on this, how do they contact you to be part of this reading? <laughs> they can, um, um, we have a Gmail address, which is just claremontrun at gmail.com. Uh, you just send me an email and you know, we can talk or you can just literally just send me an audio file and I'll, put it to like the best stock footage that I can find and <laughs> publicly available music. It'll be great. Yes. Amazing. Okay. So, you know, I just said I'm new, I'm a new reader. And so some of the people who listen to our podcast are also new readers. Um, what would you say are some good entry points for new readers to get in on the Claremont run? Like where should they start? Do they start at the beginning? No, I, <laughs> I usually say no. I, I, I think he was finding his way at first. And like, there's good stuff in those early issues, but I mean, he, he's not the writer that he would kind of famously become. Um, so for me, the best entry point would be like Dark Phoenix Saga or shortly after Dark Phoenix Saga when he starts to reconfigure the book. That's a good one because it, it is a contained story, um, which makes it easier to kind of um, understand and appreciate. And by then, I think he had the characters' voices consistent. Whereas if you read like early Claremont, like Colossus is a jerk. Yeah. Which, which is weird because that's that's not his, his nicest guy yeah exactly so that's a good one i think the start of the australia era is a good one because it's a reconfiguration and it's just a really good era the storytelling is spectacular um and then 
the John Romita era is hard to jump into. I would, I would say the Paul Smith era is delightful because he kind of steps back. Yeah. So, so any of those I think is, is fair game. I actually think for a lot of people, um, um, Hawkspock, House of X, Powers of X, for people getting into like contemporary X-Men, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think Hickman provided a great launching point for that. And I think we're seeing that in the sales, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah it was definitely a good entry point for me. Because yeah. look at it, I'm still, I'm still here. I was like, how do I, how do I overwhelm and interest her at the same time to make her want to go further and learn more? Well, this was actually part of the, the, the impetus for the project too, was just Claremont's X-Men is too big. Like it's too old and it's too big. So when I try to teach it in my classes, my students are like, who the hell is this person? And why is this person angry at this person? And how much backstory is there? Uh, so having a project that was kind of chronicling some of these fundamental movements, I thought might make X-Men a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've worked with a couple of friends to try and find their way in. And um, the the Wolverine miniseries has helped the, a couple oh, yeah, people yeah. that's that gotten them in. And um, actually your first is Days of Future Past. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the first that I read. Uh, do you have any, outside of what we just talked about, any favorite stories or stories that have been impactful to his run or comics as a medium? Uh, as, as in Claremont's story specifically? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think Wounded Wolf, which is um, 205. It's a Wolverine solo story. It's pretty simplistic, but it really defined who that character was and his connection to sort of the X-Men's core mission. Um, so that story I think is remarkable. I, I think, uh, the famous, um, um, professor Xavier is a jerk story, uh, is wonderful and accurate in its title. <laughs> it does some cool stuff. Um, with, with again, character development from there. I really like Inferno or actually not even Inferno. I like the build up to Inferno, uh, the earlier stuff, because I think Madeline Pryor is, is one of Claremont's most sort of undersung characters. Um, and I know um, Jason Powell, who wrote the the largest book on Claremont studies, uh, he really likes the Genosian saga specifically. And I kind of agree with him. My only complaint is that it bounces back and forth between two pencilers, which creates a little bit of a tonal problem. Hmm. Um, but the story is fantastic. Uh, this meta- metaphor for um, apartheid South Africa uh, hmm. and, and connecting the mutant issues to that was was really beautiful. That's a lot. I have a lot to do. I have a lot of reading to do. We have, we have so many. I have you have them all. I have Wounded Wolf. <laughs> I, I was at a bar recently, not recently, this was maybe like a year or so ago, and we were talking right. about someone mentioned the uh, the cover, the, the Barry Windsor Smith with the, the pipes coming out of Wolverine. And I was like, Oh, Wounded, wounded Wolf, X Men 205. And the guy was like, Who are you? Why would you be able to say that and know that right now? <laughs> That's amazing. My students um, are reading that for next week. Oh, oh cool. exciting. We'll, we'll get to talk about it. It'll be good. So can you talk a little bit about the depth in Claremont's writing versus modern comics? Yeah, I think so. One of the issues with modern comics is um, we shifted the balance a little bit to visual storytelling over um, a more multimodal text and image storytelling. Um, and that's okay. Like, like, I think that's exciting, certainly. And it, it creates spectacle. And the industry is very much driven by visual artists these days. Um, which makes sense. The problem, and I think a lot of readers are experiencing this, is it takes about five minutes to read a comic book and they cost $5. So there's better ways to spend your money, right? 
So, so Claremont was in, in a time when you can get away with dense text. And even then Claremont's is the densest by far. Uh, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a writer who writes more within his comics. I, I feel like um, his letterer, Tom Orzachowski deserves infinite love from, from, from Claremont just for fitting all the letters in there. Um, so, so that gives him depth automatically. Like you've got more scenes, you've got more dialogue, you've got more thought, you've got more narrative caption. Thus you get a wider palette. You can do more um, in a way that I think contemporary comics writers can't. Um, so the era again is working in Claremont's favor, uh, the, this product of circumstance. Um, so that's a big thing. And then the other thing is um, his emphasis on character over plot which wasn't in vogue in either comics or science fiction specifically at that time, but he, he kind of makes it happen. Like there are a lot of X-Men comics that like, if you went to like those plot chart things that you used to have to do in grade three, you would die. Like, like, like there's, there's nothing you could do. What happens in this issue? I don't even know. These characters talk to these characters. And that's about it. Um, so I think that makes it feel more immersive right? Because you are getting to know the characters in such depth um, and, and following their journeys and, and mostly feeling their pain because famously he does like to torture his characters emotionally, mm -hmm. um, maybe more so than contemporary authors. Um, he also does a really fun thing that Shakespeare does too, which is he can have a character surprise you by doing something that is perfectly consistent with their character. Uh, a, a lot of authors aren't good at that. If they want to surprise you, it, it's a contrivance, right? A character will suddenly get mad for no reason in a way that doesn't make sense. Um, Claremont's characters will frequently do shocking things. And you're like, oh, crap, this is exactly how that character would have reacted. I just didn't see it, mm. um, which is which is delightful. It's a great way to blindside people. And he does that a lot. Mm. That's I definitely noticed visually oh, you yeah. know, the the amount of text. Like when we were going through Days of Future Past, I was like, whoa, yeah. there's so much text. And that's exciting to me because I've always been more of a book person. And I feel like that's kind of what interests me about his run is that if he, it could feel like it's a book. And yeah. I can get that whole world building through visual and mental. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a fundamental theory in comics by um, Scott McCloud, which says that comics are an immersive medium because they require you to fill in the blanks. So like you're like, if there's a picture of a guy holding an ax and then the next picture is a dead body, McLeod says you swung the ax, right? Ooh. So it makes it immersive for you. So at contemporary comics, when they show you every little visual image of every scene transition, you're maybe losing a bit of that as well, potentially. Uh, there's different theories on that. That's just one of them. That's interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool well, concept. And we're talking about the art side, you know, the, the visual medium of comics, the visual influence of comics. How has, how was Claremont's storytelling impacted by his collaborations with different artists? You know, what, what was brought out by Cockrum that wasn't brought out by Smith or vice versa? Right, right. Yeah, no, um, a lot. So <laughs> uh, Cockrum really likes science fiction. So X-Men is a science fiction, like, Cockrum can't get them off planet Earth fast enough uh, <laughs> once they start writing, right? Um, Byrne does a little bit of everything, uh, but he's known for um, structure. Byrne is a purist. He, he, he likes sort of Silver Age comics. Hmm. Uh, famously, one of their big fights was um, Byrne hated that Claremont wanted to make Magneto redeemed. He felt the villains should be bad guys. They should be mustache twirling bad guys, right? 
then you have Paul Smith who comes from advertising uh, and Smith is all about um, um, emotional gesture and posture. And that's really where Claremont turns the corner for me in terms of um, really amping up that character development because he has an illustrator who can do that. Uh, and then Mark Silvestri is like maybe the most obvious Frank Frazetta disciple uh, in comics history. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, X-Men becomes this Conan like um, um, sword and sandals drama. Jim Lee comes in. He's very like, like tactical military style. And that's what the X-Men become. Yeah. Um, so, so you can really see the illustrator, the pencilers um, driving that momentum um, in some complicated ways. Yeah, it's interesting. The the I mean, a couple of the points, but Smith specifically, you know, the Brood Saga in my mind is one of my favorites. It's probably one of my favorite arcs, uh, and just the internal struggle that you can see in the characters with these choices that they have to make, and and dealing with this giant threat uh, is really sold that much more through their expressiveness and through how they're dealing with it yeah yeah absolutely and, and even just like like differentiation of the characters this is a valid complaint against burn like his characters all have the same face mm -hmm. uh, they all kind of look the same like his male and female characters he's got two faces <laughs> male or female and that's he varies them a little bit um so having the characters be like visibly different not just facially but physically mm. that's huge in the smith run uh and smith can do clothes too there's very few compensers who can draw clothes where you have like fabric flowing and not just like most pencilers will tell you they just draw nudes and then they put like little lines to make it look like it's a t-shirt right <laughs> but alan davis and paul smith can draw fabric um which that's is funny immersive right i learned so much on this podcast <laughs> i really do um so i'm starting to really connect to kitty as a character oh, and i feel like um, you know, she serves as a point of view for the reader. And I'm wondering what you think, how that influences the experience of the reader to be able to connect to Kitty's point of view. Um, I think it's huge. So, so, so we know about Kitty in terms of representation because the sidekick character is a thing since the 1940s. It's almost as old as comics. And the idea was it's hard for kids reading about Captain America to identify with him because they're just kids. So I'm going to have a kid stand right next to Captain America and share in their adventures. But we also know that comics culture in particular tends to exclude women. And there's a lot of gatekeeping and stuff like that. So having a psychic character who is female in a book that's not just like, um, like Wonder Woman or something like that mm -hmm. is absolutely enormous. Uh, a book that is read largely by male teenagers at this time period and saying, I want you to identify with this, this teen girl. Um, and like people were mad. They were flat out angry when Kitty came on the scene. Uh, but she's a great character. And I think she shows the universality of a human experience and the sort of mm -hmm. um, fallacy of the, that, that sort of essentialist gender divide that we often assume is there where like you'll have male authors like, like J.R.R. Tolkien, who like says, I don't write women because I can't and I don't want to write bad ones, <laughs> which is like, ah. Did you I mean, try? I guess that's good. <laughs> You're not <laughs> wanting to write bad ones, but yeah, at least they're in the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, so 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 Kitty Kitty is huge from a representational perspective. But what makes her so effective in that role is how good she is as a viewpoint character. Like you take out the politics, and Kitty Pride is this beautiful, vulnerable character whose mm -hmm. power specifically is in vulnerability. So she's there 
she can be there because it's not that dangerous for her because she'll phase through anything. Um, but what we learn over the course of the Claremont run is that the real vulnerability is emotional. Hmm. Um, and, and watching Kitty get exposed to these horrors really hammers home how horrific those horrors are. It gives them a new weight uh, that's different than when, you know, Wolverine, who's disaffected by most everything, right. has to encounter a scary alien. When, when Kitty has to encounter a scary alien, we get that sort of scope uh, of that trauma, let's say. That's awesome. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the project of the Claremont run are the videos that y'all do on, mm. on YouTube. They're just hyper dense with thematic information and expanding on a lot of the bigger ideas in Claremont's comics representation specifically. I, I have been talking back and forth with a, a colleague of mine at the university that I work with and suggested she check out a few of those, those videos for just what is capable in the comics medium. So where, where did the idea for these videos come from and where would you like to see those go? Oh, that was cool because um, the first uh, um, um, research assistant we had um, is Rebecca Redden, uh, who I, I taught as an under, like all my research assistants, as is normally done, you recruit from your classes, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this one's smart and this one's smart. I should get them <laughs> to work for me. Uh, so Rebecca actually asked to be on the project before the project existed. She was like, if you ever do a project with Claremont, let me know. And I was like, ha ha ha, that'll never happen. And then a year <laughs> later, I was like, oh, guess what? Rebecca is a very talented documentarian filmmaker. Um, she, she's won some awards. She's gotten some grants. She's currently a grad student um, in Montreal at this point. Uh, so I knew we had her on the project and I'm like, well, let's try and do something video that'll take advantage of her skills. So like, it's beautiful, man. I just write down some thoughts on Claremont that I would normally like publish an article format or something like that. Uh, and like, here, Rebecca, make me look smart. <laughs> and I email her the, the script and the audio for it. Uh, and then a month later, she bounces it back to me. And it's, it's wonderful to have that kind of resource completely by accident. Yeah. yeah it's, it's also really nice for like a, the viewer because the way that the images come in and there's like side by sides and things like that, <laughs> like you're really being able to say like, okay, I can like doubly comprehend everything that's being said because I'm, seeing the references to them and you know it keeps it moving and so like one thing I feel is that sometimes the world these days is like uh nobody wants to wait for information they just want the information so if you can take all of this information and put it in a video and keep it entertaining and keep it moving and that your mind is blown while you're watching it it's gold solid yeah, gold and that's really Rebecca's talent she she like seems to understand what I'm saying and can accentuate the point rather than just illustrating the point. Yeah. 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 yeah the, the ones that we were watching the other day, the, the one on black characters, indigenous mm -hmm. representation, queer subtext, just all the things that are, are so key to the themes of Claremont's run and the things that he's writing about and is known for breaking barriers on. Yeah. So one question I had about that was, do you think there's anything specifically that drove Claremont or inspired him to be so inclusive in his writing? Like what, where did that come from? Well, he credits his interest in um, representing female characters positively with his mom. Hmm. Um, his mother worked for um, the Royal Air Force um, in Britain for, for many, many years, eventually got her pilot's license. And he describes her as a general badass. So he, he wanted his female characters to be like that. And if you do read the run and you, you are, count how many female pilots there are 
it, it's it's hilarious after a while. So you can definitely see a direct reflection there. So that was, um, I think, his big thing with gender. He also was pretty active in the Wicca faith, from what we know. He's been a bit cagey about this, um, but his his first wife was allegedly um, a very high ranking um, Wicca. I believe it's priestess. It's called. So, so the Wicca faith, of course, is very um, gender positive, uh, and that may have influenced him as well, as people have suggested. But again, we don't have great evidence on that. Um, and that's, again, something I would love to just be like, hey, but I, I can't do it that way. Right. Um, and then in terms of like like general inclusivity, I don't know. I, I think he had an international experience. He, he was from Britain. He lived in Israel. Uh, and he came to New York and by his own account was bullied for being different. And I think even just beyond that, he recognized the metaphor that Stan and Jack were going for mm -hmm. um, just that, that fundamental experience of being marginalized in a community. And he really wanted to draw that out. And it was Claremont who specifically made it um, or brought in the element of Jewishness uh, through first Magneto and then Kitty pride um, and, and really cultivated that into the X-Men metaphor. Um, the racial allegory, I think was always there. Um, the queer subtext was not always there at all. That was him. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's trying to be just like generally inclusive, I think, which is another really important thing of the run. For me, what makes it remarkable isn't that he was doing this stuff uh, in the 70s and 80s, because Marvel Comics could be really homophobic uh, and misogynist in this time period and racist. Mm -hmm. um, so, so cool that he's doing it, but especially cool that he's doing it and it's the best-selling book. You know what I mean? Yeah. The idea that it could still succeed. Uh, I think that speaks to its scope and its reach and the extent to which a lot of people learn to be like more kind <laughs> and inclusive right. from being raised on X-Men. I mean, yeah. I, I was born in Thunder Bay. It is a either white or Ojibwe population. We don't have racial diversity beyond that. Um, and for me, I think Claremont Run was an important touchstone for, again, approaching different people with um, a conscientious understanding. Of those differences which is that's interesting that I, I almost think that that might be why we've we've found and, and and you even remarked just the positive reactions and engagements with the, the x fan community yeah. and just how yeah. receptive oh, yeah. they are to other other takes and other ideas and just having a dialogue yeah no exactly i, I think that's a, that's a huge component of x twitter that's probably why it's so welcoming and kind because internet communities these days are not known for being either of those things no you're terrible sometimes <laughs> so i want to talk a little bit about the editorial and creative relationship so how you know I, I think there was a little push and pull especially as he started to grow the popularity of the book and the influence and but at, at the same time you know those restrictions or those mandates or, or influences brought out some really great things you know the, the death of gene in, in the dark phoenix the creation of the new mutants and and how that that came about um could you tell us a little bit about what you found in that relationship and how editorial influence positively or negatively the creative control of claremont's run yeah i, I think it's it's enormous i mean i mean as we said it, it was the goodwill of his first editor that got him the book in the first place right so it's there's one um then as you said the death of dark phoenix which really spurs this mortal consciousness um in x-men comics which was again jim shooter mandated it uh, they had to do it over a weekend, which is not enough time. Uh, and then, um, I don't know, uh, Louise Simonson coming on board, uh, creating a, a good collaboration there, which allowed the X franchise to develop because Claremont trusted Wheezy 
uh, to write new mutants to to write x factor and stuff like that um walter simonson coming in as part of that as well um and nascenti was trusted with classic x-men backup stories and creating all kinds of other inroads to the x-men universe and then eventually it was conflict with bob harris um that led to um claremont being ousted which is actually the video we're working on now yeah. and and the coolest thing about this is when their relationship broke down they would only communicate via fax they were doing that horrible <laughs> passive aggressive thing which sounds bad and it is yeah. but that means we have the faxes yeah, oh. documented yeah so i have this like rebecca's yes. going to be working on this like really cool ken burns style correspondence versus correspondence wow. thing. Um, awesome. and it, it is amazing like like oh god it, it's heartbreaking like, like claremont just talking about how sad he is and how hurt he feels by the choices they're making and they're just like listen guy <laughs> do you want this or not go somewhere else <laughs> it's hard to read yeah I, I can imagine because i remember when we were watching that documentary i think is when i really was exposed to kind of that whole story of like what happened and i was like i think i was sitting there with my jaw just like dropped yeah. like, what is going on i can imagine how you'd feel like these are my babies right. but yeah, yeah just that influence of like where the power was or who was driving the bus really you know it's it really exactly. became more on the artist's side and they didn't want to do the things that he wanted to do and he'd been on the book for so long and which is another you know red flag or just something to be worried about is uh, where are you going to go with it what injecting new ideas and new blood but yeah yeah specifically jim lee wanted to do classic x-men stuff and claremont mm. said i've already done that right. and that created the conflict and like they got along really well jim lee and chris claremont there, there's I can't, I can't find a trace of animosity between them uh, in any kind of correspondence but but bob harris was the intermediary and he was pretty hostile and um which might not be revealed in the video writes his notes in all caps which I find astonishing that <laughs> an editor in chief at a major publishing company writes in all caps. He's proving a point. <laughs> Very aggressive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's being authoritative. <laughs> Do you think that the work that Claremont did influenced the direction of any other comics during his time on X-Men? Yeah, we we know that for a fact. Like um, a lot of comics writers have talked about this. Um, even ones that you might not think, like Alan Moore has said, um, Claremont was very influential on him. Um, specifically, Miracle Man. Um, Moore says he was inspired by Dark Phoenix Saga, and they had a good relationship. Um, they they worked together uh, a little bit more. Worked on Captain Britain, um, after Claremont, and then kind of before Claremont as well. Um, so yeah, we know we we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that he's he's been very influential. Um, the the Claremont run, we've interacted with a bunch of comics creators and stuff like that, um, which is scary. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I think for me the the fascinating one that we've been trying to develop, and we've got really good evidence on at this point, is the extent to which Claremont has influenced what we call long form or binge watching television. Yeah. Um, cause a lot of the guys who are cultivated that, which would be like Joss Whedon, um, things like stranger things, like they'll tell you Claremont was a massive influence. Mm. Uh, and, and the way that we tell those long continuous stories is very X-Men like, um, mm -hmm. so, so you can see a whole lot of Claremont in like game of Thrones and stranger things and Buffy the vampire slayer, obviously yeah. like, it's not even subtle in Buffy the vampire slayer. They just rip off entire arcs for like a season of Buffy or angel. Um, Man, yeah. I think I only ever would like kind of pop into those shows when they were on. 
Maybe I'll revisit them. <laughs> um, I think they hold up okay. <laughs> There's a few of them that are. Oh, that's that's really racist. But okay, it was it was 1997. Right? Look back at some stuff. You're like, how? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as you said, the um, and I and I actually I read your article about his influence on long continuity storytelling and just also crossovers too, right? You know, the mutant massacre and how that took what was a one book story and then just grew into this massive and even beyond the X-Men titles themselves. Um, so we, we've been talking about characters, we've been talking about depth of characters, kind of filling out that backstory while still leaving a little mystery. How does that play a role in how engaging and long lasting his stories are and, and these characters have grown to be? Okay, this is a really cool question because like, we don't know how much of this is intentional, but he, he's also notorious for dangling plot threads. And like, sometimes that's kind of good. Right. <laughs> Just how did this happen? You didn't explain this. Why are Storm and Jean friends? And he's like, what do you mean? They're friends in my head. I just assumed you all knew that. <laughs> and then he can go back in classic X-Men and like tell that story specifically. And you're like, oh, okay, well now it makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I do think the way that his mind wandered and the way that we were kind of getting an iceberg approach, like the characters were alive in his head uh, and having their own adventures, I'm assuming 24 uh, seven, makes them feel lived in when we do encounter them, which gives that sense of depth. And again, the fact that we're like missing all these adventures that we hear about briefly in the book again, allows us to kind of fill in those spaces. Um, there's a term for it. There's, there's a theoretical term for it called um, affinity spaces, uh, which, which just means, you know, places to kind of go for a fan culture. Um, mm. But I mean, one of the things our study did look at quite a bit was um, X-Men fan fiction. Uh, and there's, there's a lot there and probably because of those gaps uh, mm. that are being created again, possibly quite accidentally. Right. So cool. That's, yeah, I, I had never, I actually, it's right here. I recently bought the omnibus of the X-Men classic, classic X-Men backup stories. I had never read them. You know, I've read the Claremont run a handful of times, but now to actually dive in, I just recently read that at first friends to really show you that where that development came from. I think that's such yeah. an interesting aspect of his run that he was able to go back and expand on that depth. Yeah. And like, like, specifically in character vignettes, which you're not normally going to get away with in comics because you need to have something explode every few pages. Uh, so getting to see him do those, those character stories is really wonderful. He didn't do enough of them. There's maybe 20, I think that he wrote, um, but they're some of the best stories he ever wrote in, in, in yeah. my opinion. So crazy. There's so much, there's so much to his run, right? It was so long. So do you, for you personally, are there any, you know, sour points or things that you didn't love that you were like, mm. <laughs> things that have an age. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, let me think. Um, oh, again, the early issues, like, I, I think if X-Men got canceled after two years, I don't have this project. Like no one's talking about the Claremont run. X-Men was a decent story um, that kind of got churned out. There's a lot of like sexualization of some of the characters in the Sylvester era that I, I kind of didn't love um particularly like like rogue um who's a teenager and um specifically has trauma uh, around the subject of sexuality so I, I felt a little uncomfortable with some of those stories I, I think that could have been toned down i do not like and no one can convince me to like the kitty colossus relationship <laughs> because of kind of 
weird. Yeah, it's it's not Asia. right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. He seems aware of it sometimes, and he speaks about it sometimes. And I really appreciate that. But in general, I would I would like it if it just didn't happen. <laughs> just cut it out. Yeah, and I I think Rachel left the book too soon. Although I really do like the way she left the book. I, I thought it was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and Madeline Pryor, I. As I said, I, I adore that character. I loved her relationship with um, um, Alex and would have loved to see more of that. Mm. But these are like all just like fan things, right? I, I have no right to criticize. I think the reason I love Madeline is is because of what actually happened and how sad it made me. Yeah. But yeah, but as a fan too, like when, you, when you're given characters with so much depth, you become like you have a sense of ownership of them so that you feel even though like you know it's the author's prized possession you feel like you also are like but i want them to do this (laughs) why are they not doing what i want them to do who do i need to talk to yeah i I feel that way about iliana sometimes i I don't know why that character when someone writes her badly i'm like no no you're not allowed she's awesome too there's this is i think for me too, like when we've met Claremont and talked to him, I guess I just didn't, because I wasn't a comic reader and I just didn't know. I just assumed all the women were just like, cause they're always naked. I'm like, Oh, whatever. Like, well, I don't want to read this. It's all going to be like just these sassy, sexy ladies. And then I'm like getting tastes of all these characters. And I'm like, Oh, strong, badass women. I'm liking all these. Like I'm going to be making a lot of cosplay costumes. <laughs> Yeah, and he does, I mean, he sexualizes the men too, uh, which is, I mean, that was already happening, I won't lie, but he doesn't get too much credit for that. Um, but the the agency that the women have is important. And some of those women who are sexualized specifically have sexual agency, which is a huge thing that they normally lack because Laura Mulvey, um, the, the film theorist, tells us that in order to objectify women, you have to dehumanize them. Uh, so when you have characters who are like, visually sexually like like attractive but still have agency still have desire still have character and personality and you're rooting for them at the same time then according to Mulvey's theory you're taking them out of that like sex object um, perspective and i don't think it's perfect i don't think he always does that and there's a lot of stuff in the run where you're like i was really enjoying this character why did you do that just now (laughs) other than to sell comic books right Mm-hmm. Um, but again that might be a product of its era to some degree too but that's not fair for me to say either because part of my argument is that he was ahead of his era right right uh ahead of his era and and uniquely from that perspective that we've talked about focusing on character that the internal conflict I, i've talked to a handful of people on social media through the podcast and just how many of his characters are tortured or are are having this, <laughs> this depth of conflict within them how does that move the story, you know, kind of character versus plot? How does that change the direction of, of where stories can and do go? Yeah. And that was, that was, okay. So contradicting myself, but that was one of the things I asked him. I specifically asked him about his approach. Do you think about a story first or do you think about the character first? Um, and he totally thinks character first, uh, his, his plots when he comes up with a plot and sometimes he doesn't. Uh, it's how is this going to change the character? How is this going to advance the character's journey? And actually, when you go through his notebooks, um, which I did, uh, (laughs) you'll have many plots that he'll write out and then he'll cross them out. And at the bottom, it'll say, yeah, but what's the point? 
<laughs> like how does it affect the character uh, where is this taking us and like i'm like i've never seen this story and the reason i've never seen the story is because I gave up on it right if it wasn't advancing the character um so yeah no I, and i think that that's kind of inverse from what we normally get in comics which is plot first then you think about how the plot affects the character he thinks mm -hmm. character first uh, and builds plots in order to advance the character arc um how those characters are changing over time um which is awesome i mean it's a novel if nothing else right mm -hmm. so cool i just feel like it's like that's the one thing that interests me the most about a run that's so long for one person is that he's so conscious of how every character acts about everything and how everything influences every character that like i want to live in his head yeah i want to get up in there and just like explore what's going on what else didn't hit the page what else do yeah. you know <laughs> tell yeah, me no. everything it is it is fun in the archive to see some of the stories that weren't some of the scripts that weren't like he, he wrote a giant treatise for a film for an animated series and stuff like that um it's really cool to see all the things that never developed uh, my favorite is like the characters who were going to be on other teams that didn't make it or villains who were going to be like, um, you know, Legion was supposed to be an X factor. That would have been really cool. Um, Siren was supposed to be an Excalibur. I think Madrix was supposed to be in there as well. That would have been really cool. Um, yeah. Now th th there's a lot of like shuffling of the deck that kind of ends up happening for reasons I have no idea, <laughs> but again, fun to think about all the stuff that didn't yeah. make it to the page. What do you, how would you say after Claremont's run was over, what would you say like the world of comics had to transition like post Claremont? What was that like? It was a weird time. People forget that comics imploded um, in, in the mid early nineties, the industry lost, I forget what statistically it is, but like 90% of its revenue. Cool. It, it was hilarious. Like, like, like they died. <laughs> Marvel was filing for bankruptcy at one point. DC was trying to sell Batman. <laughs> it's it's unimaginable. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and I think a, some people point to like um um the collapse of um the comic book store. Some people point to um industry issues with gimmicks where they would sell like multiple issues of the first of one comic, which obviously Claremont is guilty of. <laughs> uh, best selling comic of all time with like six versions. Yeah. Um. So I, I think the big transition though, was just moving from writer oriented to artist oriented um, and, and what that meant. And we still see that transition today. Um, one of the big problems visually that came out of that was uh, the aesthetic changes. You're not trying to draw the scene anymore. You're trying to make an awesome picture. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, the characters all look like Greek gods. The, like my favorite is how Jim Lee draws Cyclops who, reminder is nicknamed slim but but has like arnold schwarzenegger physique and muscles that don't oh exist Pouch yeah. is popping off. <laughs> and, and, and all the bodies become the same and all the faces become the same and i think that was good in terms of creating an aesthetic but bad in terms of creating story yeah so I, think, I think that was the big shift and, and claremont leaving or falling out when he did i, I don't know that there's there's a weird bit of sort of parallel timing there in my mind Mm -hmm. I think I would struggle with when everybody looks the same because I like to find the continuity errors and say, <laughs> what is this supposed to mean? 
why is this the same? Is this the same character as this? So I would like drive myself draw, bonkers. Draw me be like, why does this person look exactly like this person? <laughs> Are they the same? We see that at the dialogue level too, right? I mean, this is one of the way we measure characterization in comics is if you took someone's text bubble and you literally just slid it over to another character, would it still work? Mm. Uh, and if the answer is yes, well, then you're not distinguishing the character voices. And there's a lot of that in comics of the 90s and 2000s and such where characters just say things because they haven't said anything in a little while uh, and you could give a text balloon to to warpath that was supposed to be for for somebody else like boom boom or cannonball or something like that doesn't matter they don't speak inconsistent voices claremont was very good at that probably because of that whole method thing mm -hmm. but when storm yeah. says something it's clear that it's storm saying it which i think is nice yeah and so we've talked about Claremont's influence on kind of long form storytelling, but also let's talk a little bit about his influence on X-Men films, X-Men TV media. Uh, I read you had the, the thread about the credit to the creators. You know, th these are those big stories that we've seen countlessly adapted successfully, unsuccessfully, you know, tell us about kind of what you think his impact has been on the X-Men's franchise after he's left. Well, I think they're, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird because we, we we credit the creation of the character, which is a weird thing in comics because you can have a character exist for decades, um, but who they are in the 70s isn't who they are in the 60s and isn't who they are in the 2000s. They're clearly a different character. They just have the same name. Hmm. Um, so we're, we're underappreciating there. And a lot of like character and character dynamic, like that's all over the X-Men film universe. Uh, and Claremont's not getting credit for that. And then you have very specific storylines. Like they can do a dark Phoenix saga and not credit Chris Claremont. That's deeply offensive <laughs> and, and so strange to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's just kind of how the industry um, um, evaluates or evaluates, I should say, um, intellectual property. Uh, and they don't think about cultivating character, cultivating story. They just think about, you know, who created the title, which is not, really the thing because again nobody cared about x-men uh for its first 20 years uh so suggesting that jack um, and stan created x-men probably isn't accurate i, I think claremont created x-men yeah uh, not whole cloth but nothing in comics is done whole cloth so I, I think it's just one of the more fundamental problems that we have in the contemporary media industry and it, it's a problem with like real consequences we have a lot of great comics writers starving uh, or committing suicide in some cases it, it's really rough um getting credit and financial value while they're creating these multi-million or billion dollar franchise stories how yeah, does that, that happen that's definitely mind-blowing in that like you work so hard on something and then it's not you don't own it like it's not yours and they don't they don't have to give you credit for it and like you, I think about what you're saying about Dark Phoenix, right? Or a Phoenix, the Phoenix story in general. Imagine if they took like the Hunger Games books and they were like, the publisher of the Hunger Games book was like, yeah, we're just going to make this, but we're not going to credit the author at yeah. all. Yeah, it's the work for hire system. It it should be illegal, yeah. uh, but they, they still get away with it, um, which is really, really appalling. And Claremont's not hurting. So like my case is not a good one. He, he made his money. He, he's fine. He's currently getting paid to not write comics, uh, which yeah. is a really weird thing. Um, 
but a lot of other creators, wow, you, you go right down the list. There's some really famous names who are not half as wealthy as they ought to have been, mm-hmm. which is kind of kind of tragic. But I think there's also the like legacy thing. If you create this story, you want your name on it. Yeah. And so being denied, that hurts. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, now I want to know about you. Okay. I want to know... <laughs> dun dun dun! No, in all caps. Tell me about you. Who's your favorite X Men? Okay, from a literary analytical perspective, Storm. Storm is a really good character, and it is for me the best example of a character who doesn't start out good. I, I don't. I don't think he has her for at least a year uh, before he gets her voice. Uh, and I might even argue she gets continually better throughout the run, um, becoming this very complex character who embodies a lot of dualities love mm-hmm. that she's 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 meticulously crafted she's perfect uh, <laughs> as like a literary character uh and then just for personal reasons again Ilyana. i i always identified with Ilyana. i have no idea why uh, <laughs> i don't have a lot in common with Ilyana. um but but when bad things happen to her i feel it and when she sacrificed herself in inferno that was hard for me yeah. and then as i said when um later writers don't write her well I get mad, like like Jeff Lemire, who was born not far from where I'm sitting, uh, <laughs> really made me mad about Ilyana. Um, and then conversely, when she's written well, like Leah Williams did um, in the the magic what if, mm. like breaks my heart in the nicest possible way. Mm. So building off of favorite X Men, what about your favorite team or era? My go to is usually the Outback era. I like how loose the storytelling is. I, 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 it's not very plot focused. Um, and I, I like how character driven it is. And I like that, t- that the team is so ragged. You know what I mean? They're really tired. Yeah. I don't know. That's just like me being a dad and <laughs> relating hard to being really tired all the time. Um, but yeah, no, I, I identify that. I really like Havoc as this like screw up brother of Cyclops. That's a really good take for that character. Yeah. Um, I, I really like like Colossus being cut off from his family, Wolverine being on his last legs, um, all that stuff. I, I think that was a great era. That was probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah. He really takes characters into places that they had not yet been. And I feel like that just yeah. speaks to his process of continually evolving who this character is in a way that makes sense for their growth. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, last, not really a question, just a plug. I heard about and checked out the three panel contrast, the podcast that you do with the other two folks uh, and talking and, and contrasting comics runs. I listened to the Asgardian Wars versus Hawks <laughs> episode. And, and to really see that contrast in plot driven versus character driven was, was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about that podcast or plug that before we wrap up. Sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I team with a, a pair of um, colleagues from different universities or campuses, um, Michael Hancock uh, and Anna Papard. Um, and we just like to, I guess, alchemy, really. Like you, you take two comics and you sort of compare things across them that have a point of comparison and you tend to find a lot of things that you wouldn't if you just analyze the comic on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just do a, a monthly podcast where we, once a month get together and take turns pitching like this month we're going to read these two comics um and then very congenially because we're all very nice canadian people um talk to each other about (laughs) these these comics even when we disagree we tend to be nice (laughs) 
very civil conversations about it. It really is. <laughs> We're too... And this is a huge problem because Anna and I have like the same brain about comics sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like I should just like stir things up and say yeah. things I don't believe to, to get her angry or something. Just just play devil's advocate. Be yeah. like, one more. <laughs> what if what about this? Yeah. Um <laughs> Any, any place else that people can learn more about the Clemmer Run or your work? Or You can always Google me. I, I have a whole bunch of publications, media and academic. Um, so J. Andrew Demand, uh, that works. Um, then there's the Twitter feed, which is, is always there <laughs> every day, um, which is at Claremont Run. And then there's our website, which is www.claremontrun.com. Awesome. Well, this, Amazing. This has been great. Yeah, great this is fantastic. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate Much it. Here. Yeah. All right. Until next time, old friend. Charles! Thanks so much for joining us today on the X-Wife Podcast. Be sure to leave us a review and tell your friends. The X-Wife Podcast is produced in Providence, Rhode Island by Alicia and Justin. Our music is by Quan. 